Lord, we just ask you to bless this time as we study. We thank you for each person that's here. Lord, we lift up those that are sick. We think of Vicki and, and John who's having some problems and just all the other ones that are having some illnesses and that you will just touch their, their bodies and heal them. We ask you to bless this study as we open up your word. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 1. The priest, the Levites, and all the tribe of Levi shall have no part nor inheritance in, with Israel. They shall eat of the offerings of the Lord made by fire and his inheritance. Therefore shall they have no inheritance among their brethren. The Lord is their inheritance as he has said unto them. And this shall be the priest due from the people from them that offer a sacrifice, whether it be an ox or sheep. And they shall give unto the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the maw and the first fruit also of, the, of your corn and your wine and your oil and your first of your fleece of your sheep shall you give them. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all the tribes to stand to minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. So we're going to look at this one and we're here, again we're having the repeat of things that we've already covered in the previous books. But it says, the priests, which are the children of Aaron... The Levites and all of the tribe of Levi will have no inheritance in the land. When they entered into the promised land, they did not get land given to them. Now they had several cities that were given to them, and they were given the cities of refuge as, as part of their possession. So they had cities all over Israel, but they did not have land. And out in they, just a few about a mile or something, half mile to mile around the city to, that they could grow some crops. But why did they have this? Is because God says they belong to him. He was going to take care of them. And, how, and then talks about how he takes care of them. But it says they are his inheritance. And if you remember when Levi was chosen, the tribe of Levi was chosen, they were chosen instead of the firstborn child of every family. If God had not taken the Levites, then, he's, then he would have said all the firstborns belong to him. So instead of taking the firstborn of every single family, he took the entire tribe of Levi to be his inheritance. And he said because there wasn't enough of them to, to make up for all the firstborns, they had, the children of Israel had to give a money offering into the offering to, to redeem the firstborns that were not... Uh, covered by the Levites. And if you remember, we talked about firstborns that God said that every firstborn child had to be redeemed at the temple. And that's one of the gifts that Mary and Joseph had to make for Jesus. They gave, went to the temple and they redeemed him as the firstborn child. And if you couldn't, re, you know, and you had to redeem a man and you had to redeem your animals too. And if you couldn't redeem your animals, if they were a clean animal, it had to be sacrificed. If it was an unclean animal, you broke its neck and killed it. So this is a, what God has said. Firstborn belonged to him, and instead of the firstborn male, God says, I will take the entire tribe of Levite. And because he took them to be his possession, they did not get any land allotted to them. So he's going, and he goes, because you're my inheritance, your brethren, and... Then he says, and you shall be, and this shall be the priest due from the people. When you offer a sacrifice, whether it be an ox or a sheep, they shall be given to the priest a shoulder and the two cheeks and the mouth. And so anytime they gave an offering, they got one 
front corner of the animal. They got the jaw area, which is supposed to be a delicacy of most animals. I don't know. I don't usually eat the jaw area of an animal. And they got the belly, which would have been included the ribs and stuff. So they got, they got some choice meat out of each one of the sacrifices. And when you figure that there are close to 200,000 men offering, that's a lot of offerings that are going to be made over a period of time. Well, they got the hide on, some, on one of the offerings, yes. So the, the Levites were supposed to be, when everybody was worshiping God the way they were supposed to, the Levites were well taken care of because they got probably more meat than they could ever consume because of the amount of meat. And then he says, and they get the first fruit. Okay, and we've talked about this. The first fruit was when your crops came up, you took the first part of the harvest, and that was called the first fruits, and it belonged to God. And it was a way to say, God, I'm going to trust you. When the second and third, fourth harvest comes in, they got to keep the rest of them, but God got the first, first harvest of this. And if you've ever had a garden, you know how you can take, take and strip all the stuff off, and then if everything goes right, you get a second harvest, you strip that off, and a third harvest, and depending on how long the growing season is. Don't know. By grace. Hey, Moses was a Levite. Aaron was a Levite. So he probably just took, and took the tribe of them. But why does God choose any one of us to become Christian? He allows any one of us to become yeah, Christians. Nothing that's stated. He just said the Levites are mine. And it could very well be that Moses was the leader at that time and was honoring God and serving God. And he chose Moses. But there's no real reason other than God said this is my tribe. Now he may have other reasons that we have no no clue about. He knew something about them that nobody else knows about and so he chose them. Why did he choose Joseph to be the savior of the Israelites when the during the during the uh, seven years of famine knew that knew that he would be faithful to him. So but you know the one thing when we try to figure out why God does anything Unless he very specifically tells us, it's only because he, he knows something we don't, or just pure grace. I mean, he says he chose Noah because Noah was a righteous man, but we know that Noah wasn't all that righteous, but when we look at his life and how he behaved after the flood, but he was, he was probably righteous compared to the rest of the world, and he offered sacrifices and, and honored God in that way. That, that is a very interesting question because Isaac really was not Abraham's firstborn. Ishmael was his firstborn, but Ishmael was the son of, son of the flesh and not the son of the spirit. God always counted Ish, uh, Isaac as his only son and discounted Ishmael. 14 years apart. No, you're thinking of uh, uh, ja uh, Jacob and uh, Esau. Looking, looking at what the scriptures say is about human sacrifice, I couldn't even have done it, period. Because I would have said, God, you say you don't take human sacrifices, and that would be very hard to do. Anyway, the, the priest, when everything was going right, the priests were very well taken care of. They've got lots of, lots of meat. They've got grain offerings coming in. They've got all these things coming in, being well taken care of. And it's been the same thing even for the Christian church. When, when God is being honored and the churches are filled, the pastors can get very well treated and very well paid for doing their work. When, when it ebbs away 
And for Israel, it happened a lot of times where people quit coming to the temple. And at that time, because the priests did not have land to farm and, and, and graze cattle on, they would go, it would be very tough for them to live. So their, their whole hope was on God and, and the people honoring God. And this is what he's saying. They're not going to have land. People, it's going to be your responsibility to take care of those that are working for God. Because it says in verse 5, For the Lord your God has chosen them out of all the tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, he and his sons forever. So they, were, they had a job that they were going to do. And that was to be the ministers. And this is one of the things that we, we know that right now Israel is trying to identify who are Levites, who are, Aaron, who are of the tribe of Aaron, so they can have priests when they open up the temple. And they've been training these priests how to, how to offer sacrifices so that when they get their temple built, they can hit the ground running. And the hard part there is going to get the people convinced that they need to come to the temple. But they're getting the people trained because there's a group of, of Jews that really are wanting to have this temple back because they know that without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sin and that you have to have Yom Kippur and the shedding of blood for, for, for the forgiveness of sins. Now they don't really recognize that Jesus fulfilled it so they're still waiting to be able to continue it again. They're, they're a small, small group of them but they're ready. They're wanting it because they want to be able to honor God the way he said to be worshipped and they're just uh, looking for their way to get there. Verse 6, And if a Levite come from any of your gates out of all Israel, where he sojourned, and come in with all, come with all des- desire of his mind into the place which the Lord shall choose, then he shall minister in the name of the Lord his God, as his brethren the Levites do, which stand before the Lord. They shall have like portions to eat, besides that which comes from the sale of his pat- patrimony. So he says, If a Levite comes into your town from anywhere he's traveling he's just traveling through town and it's a levite he is to be able to get his desire he is to be taken care of just as you would any other levite that you were sending your tithes and offering to so this is kind of a strange thought you know this traveling levite comes into town starts preaching and, and teaching and and he's to be taken care of by that town with what they would have given how would he know he's a levite Part of it is they're going to trust that it is a Levite. There may have been some facial features. You know, there may have been some facial features. There, it would have been probably some way they speak. You know, that was different. Just we don't really recognize it in America because we have the melting pot of America, and we don't usually make a big deal out of it. But if you go to Europe, Europeans know. Even to us as Americans, we'd go over there and go, "Well, they're all white people." With, you know, how are you telling? And they go, "Well, no, they've got this." The, the, the shape of their nose, the shape of their ears, the, the height of their neck, and they go, well, that guy's a German, that one's a, Pol- a Polak, this is an Italian, this is a Frenchman. They know because they know what they're looking for, and I'm sure there were signs that would tell them that certain people were Levites. Now, what those signs are, I have no idea. Could have been the way they dressed, could have been... One thing about the Levites, there was that if they were officially in, in office, they wore the white linen the white linen that we talked about in Ex- at Exodus. There's something that made them distinctive enough that people said, you're a Levite. Now, could there have been somebody who took advantage of that? Maybe if they dared to challenge God and have God punish them for pretending to be something that they weren't. You're also in a place where, in general, honesty reigned in Israel during the, during the righteous periods of time. 
Very much as in America, there was a time when somebody, if somebody said they were something, you would believe them and, and give them the honor of that position or, or title. They came in saying they were an evangelist. You would give them the, the title and honor of an evangelist and they'd better live up to it because they said they were. It wasn't so long ago after church, the pastor of the church never went home because he had to be invited. Him and his wife and his family would make the rounds of all the different parishioners who took turns you know, saying this is the honor I have of being able to have the pastor over for, for dinner and the pastor would just <laughs> go around to these different houses and, and be invited over and it, it was just part of what was life for them. Like I say, it wasn't, much, it wasn't that long ago, 60, 70 years ago is probably when it stopped being a big deal and even after that in smaller towns it continued. Uh, it's only been in recent years that it's kind of faded away. But in, but in the while back ago, it was the pastors, number one, weren't paid well. They, all they had was the house that the church usually gave them a room to live in, some small stipend, and, what, and they lived on whatever the, the churches gave them in food and, and meat and vegetables and, and supplies. And it was a big deal, yeah, the big deal for the family. The, everything had to be clean, just perfect. You better be yeah. on your best behavior. and, and and dressed good, and it was it was a show for the family, <laughs> yeah, as well. So, the verse says, "If he comes in, then verse seven says, then he shall minister in the name of the Lord your God, and it shall and you and you shall and they shall have like proportions to eat that which comes, besides which comes from the sale of his father's possessions or being taken care of by his father." Now remember, we're in a patriarchal society, and that's what Patra. <laughs> Patriarchy is all about. It's the father selling things and providing for the family. In a patriarchal family society, the father told you what to do, where to go, when to go, and supplied you with whatever it took to, to uh, survive. By the same token, if he asked you to do something, you did it. This is the whole th reason that the inheritance in Israel was divided up in the, into one more portion than you had sons and the eldest son had a double portion because the eldest son became the patriarch of the family and he was to take care of the family with that extra portion. He wasn't to spend it on himself. He got that extra portion so that if younger brother was an idiot and lost all of his money in a business deal, instead of being sold into slavery, he, the eldest brother was to come back and pay his debts and get him back on his feet. And so it was assumed, number one, that the eldest brother was going to be able to handle money better than the rest of them, but he was also the patriarch in the family. And that, that not, <laughs> wasn't always necessarily true, but he was probably going to spend it better because he knew that everybody was looking at him saying, are you going to take care of your family with this money? And he would have a double, if he didn't do what he was supposed to, he, have, he would have a double dishonor, not just the double honor that he had gotten receiving it. And this was just part of the way God raised took care of his people. You know, he says, you're going to take care of one another. You're going to take care of your family. You're, you know, Israel, you are not to sell yourselves into slavery to other people. You're, if, if you need to, need to be sold, you're going to sell yourself to, the, to your brethren. And then every seven years, there was the year of Jubilee, where they, uh, the, the year of release, which they released everybody, and the lands all went back to the people it belonged to. And then the year of Jubilee, where everything was restored back to the way it was supposed to be. 50th year, all the, all the land went back. You, when an Israelite sold his land, he would never sell it for perpetuity. He would, he would only be selling it until the next Jubilee, which meant the closer you got to Jubilee, the less valuable your land was 
to sell because God allowed that part. He goes, if, it's, if you've got 50 years to own the land and, and possess the land, you had to pay enough. But you didn't just pay for the land. You paid for all that the pro product, the actual produce would be that would grow on that land because you were taking that away from them as well. So you had to give them a portion of, of that into their money. So God had great provisions. It could be, especially if it's the 50th year, you could have to spend a lot of money to hold on to the land for only 50 days, no, uh, 50 years. But if, you were, if it was three years till Jubilee, then you wouldn't spend a lot of money for their land because you were only going to get it for three years and you only had to pay them for three years worth of... They did not sell their land forever. And there's certain stories in the Bible where you see this coming out. When Ahab wanted to buy the field from the, from the man, he said, I can't sell it because it's my inheritance. I can't, I can't sell it because he knew Ahab wasn't looking to return it to him in, on the year of Jubilee. And that's when Jezebel worked out all, all that catastrophe to steal the land from him and his family. So, but we see this picture where people didn't follow the law all through Scripture. Every seventh year, they were to not sow their fields and live on what they made in the, what they reaped in the sixth year. And they didn't do it for 490 years, which is why they went into captivity for 70. God says, you didn't give me 70 years of, of uh, fallow land. I'm going to, I'm, you're going to go into captivity and the land will be fallow for seven, 70 years. And they did the same thing. They did the same thing in Israel. They knew what plants grew in the winter and what plants grew in the spring and what plants grew in the, in the fall and they would plant accordingly. But God said, in every seventh year, the land is to stay fallow, which will revitalize it. And uh, they didn't understand why they were doing it. And there, we found out that there's scientific reasons for leaving your land fallow, but they didn't know it. They just did obeyed God. You potentially took a big loss that year. You lost your servants. You didn't grow. You weren't going to grow any any fresh vegetables, but God also said that the sixth year was going to be blessed and you were going to have an overabundance of crops to get you through the, the year that you weren't going to grow anything. They had a lot. They, well, we know they had the 613 laws that God gave them and they added more on top of that. We always think of the tithing being, being what they were required to do, but when you calculate tithing, first fruits, the the, the meat offering that you that you gave on you know for each of the seven major hol uh, festivals and a number of other festivals they could have been they could have been given as much as 33 to 40 percent of everything they made to God so it's they had a pretty intense rule system Do you suppose like hundred percent of the population uh, complied with all this I doubt it highly besides the fact that we know that they kept falling away from God and worshiping idols. And we have at least three times when they said that they had to spend months cleaning the garbage out of the temple because it became a refuse place. So we know there were many times where practically nobody, if anybody, because it wouldn't have become a refuse, was following it. And, and you could picture it, the Levite standing in the temple, nobody comes, nobody comes, nobody comes. You get a little bit hungry. What are you going to do? You're going to return back to your city, plant, plant farms around your town because that's the only, only place you have. And grow your own grow grow your own uh, food and and get some uh, animals. The Levites were supposed to be supported by the people. Now they worked hard. I mean, you read what they were doing in the temple. They worked very hard in the temple. <coughs> by Jesus's day, or even by David's day, they had split them up into yeah. They got bits and pieces of all of that. 
By David's day, they had had like 26 different groups, enough to fill 26 groups of people. They worked two, two weeks a year at the temple. And that, then they would go back home to whatever town they were assigned to and lived a regular life. And then they'd come back to the temple and work another two weeks and go back home. But that's only because there were so many of them. This is why when, when we hear the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth, it was a great honor for Zacharias to go in. And he didn't get to go into the Holy of Holies. He just got to go into the holy place and, and light, the, light the menorah in the holy place. And yet that was a great honor for him Many of them would work there, be a Levite for their entire life and never get to go into the holy place, much less the holy of holies, which was the high priest. And usually what they ended up doing, they got to help kill animals and cut them up into pieces. That's what they would do for the two weeks that they were in the temple. Most of the time is help to slaughter the animals and cut them up into the pieces to be... Oh yeah, they had families. Otherwise you would run out of Levites real quick because you had to be a Levite to do this. But in this time, there's not a lot of Levites. There's just a, couple, just a couple thousand of them right now. So these guys are having to do everything for, we figure, if you remember what we said, there's 600,000 men, almost 700,000 men. And most of them would have been married with families. So we, they, they anticipate that there was probably 3 million to 3.5 million Israelites wandering around the wilderness. Can you imagine one a city? That's a full-size city moving around the wilderness. And you figure when they moved out, I've always thought about this, when they started moving their camp, the people would start out early in the morning on one part, they're probably setting up camp before the last part of the people are even leaving because there's that many people. And even if you spread them out over an equivalent of a six or an eight lane highway, you know, really wide walk, it's still going to be a long ways. If you've ever seen pictures of a city being evacuated, the traffic just goes for miles but this was a large group of people that were being moved and that needed to be ministered to. And you think about this, all these offerings, every morning there's an offering, every night there's an offering. Then there's the offerings where people make vows and then there's the sin offerings and all these offerings that are going on every day, all the time. Plus you get to the Sabbath and there's special Sabbath day worship offerings besides what the people are going to bring in. Then you get to something like Passover where every 14 people have to offer a lamb. And you figure, even if you had some families, maybe 30 that were saying we can eat one lamb, you're still talking about 10,000 lambs being, you know, 100,000 lambs being killed in one day. The priests were busy. The priests and the Levites were busy. Uh, well, there's no temple for them to, to minister in right now, but yes, they will when the third temple gets built. The Levites will be the ones that minister within the temple. And we've talked about this. The reason the Jewish people have been leaders in DNA uh, testing and learning is because they want to be able to know who is a Levite, who is a, who, who is a son of Aaron, who, you know, who what tribe are you are you a member of? And so they're working on being able to register each tribe according to, to who they are because land belongs to certain tribes. And when they get their whole land, they want to split it up back to the tribes, back to the people it belongs to. So they're really pushing this. They want to know who, who your descendants are. And the rest of the world gets to benefit from it all. You know, you get verse nine. When you are coming to the land which the Lord your God shall give you, you shall not learn to do after the abominations of these nations. 
There shall not be found among you anyone that makes his son or daughter to pass through the fire, or that uses divination, or is an observer of the times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consultant with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For all, the, the, all that do these things are, are an abomination unto the Lord, and, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God does drive them out from before you. You shall be perfect with the Lord your God. For these nations which you shall possess hearken unto observers of times and to diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not suffered you to do so. So here we go. We've got, again, we've, God is stressing. You're going into a land that's following evil things and you're, being, you're, you're not to be like them. He keeps going over this. You're not to be like them. You're not to be like them. He's going to tell them you're going to kill everybody that, that is in that land because of how evil they are in God's eyes. And it says, when you are coming to that land which the Lord your God shall give you, you shall not learn to do after the abominations of these nations. Abominations. Disgusting things. And we, we've talked a few times about it. They're idol worshipers, and they're, they're following all these idols, and their, their land is full of idols. They have such affinity towards sex that they have no words for, for negative sex. Anything goes in their culture. They're violent. They're cruel. They kill each other at the drop of a hat. They're, but it is kind of like what happens in a, in a gang environment or a biker environment where everything is bad, and you ha they have their own small type of code, but looking in, all you see is evil. This was the type of people that they were being driven out of the land. And then now we're seeing a whole other section of what their God's telling them. Okay, we've had all these other things. But now he says, you shall not be found among you any that makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. This is offering your children to the God. Okay, and we've talked about this. Moloch was a big molten God and they had, had arms out. They would start a fire inside the Moloch, you'd put your baby in the arms and then the arms would be raised and the baby would be rolled into the fire. And some of them were not quite as cruel. They just put them into the fire and burned them. All of these things, he says, you're not going to be like this. You're not going to sacrifice your children to these gods. Why? Because he doesn't take human sacrifice. He takes animal sacrifices at this time. He goes, you're to be different. You're, you're, or those that use divination, fortune telling whether it be by a Ouija board or cards or staring at the stars, which is observers of times, of signs, they, the ones who look at the stars to give you your, your future and, and all that planning. They're not to be enchanters, which literally is, again, somebody who looks at signs and reads signs and casts spells, or a witch, and we know what witches are, and this is actually talking about true-fledged, True-fledged witches, which are demon worshipers or, or Satan worshipers, or charmers. These are people that, that unite with the spirits or are possessed. Or consultants with familiar spirits. These are the ones that would do seances. We would look at people doing seances, talking to the dead, the dead, communicating with the dead. Or wizards, again, a form of witchcraft. Or necromancers. And those are ones that are doing deal, dealing with dead, necro for dead, and mancers uniting with the dead, and they meet with the dead, basically, is what they're trying to say. For all these are an abomination unto the Lord, and because of their abominations, God's driving them out. 
So we see the evilness of the people that he's saying and God's saying, okay, it's bad enough that I don't want you being part of their sexual activities because you guys keep doing that activity already. And remember back in Balaam said to, to uh, Balak, send in the women and, and draw them into worship with your gods. And because many of the gods were fertility gods, that it meant that they were involved with sex outside of ma- marriage and all these orgies that were part of worshiping the fertility gods. So he goes, you've already done those ones, but now I'm also going to include don't do these other things and don't be dealing with the dead. Don't be dealing with demons. Now, most of these things we see, and we see them even today where people go, well, we're going to have a seance. We're going to talk to the dead. Well, I'm sorry, you can't talk to the dead. You can talk to a demon pretending to be the dead person that you're, that you're trying to talk to, but the dead is dead, and they're going to stand before God and be sent into heaven or hell, and you're not able to stand up and talk to them. And people will immediately point out, what about Saul when he went to the witch of Endor and had, had Samuel called up? Now, that was either a very special case where God did let Samuel go and, and talk to Saul and give God's message, or it was a demon pretending to be Samuel that was told what to say by God and, and still had to do what God said. Either way, Saul thought he saw, saw Samuel, so the result was the same. But we're not going to, that's the only other, the only place where we see a questionable relationship there. The only place they talk of somebody dead coming back and talking to somebody is there. We do know that when you die, you stand before God. Could God have sent Samuel back, the spirit of Samuel back? Absolutely. He could do whatever he wants. Uh, it's one of those verses that are, one of those sections that's very hard to understand and, and comprehend because we know that when you're dead, you're dead and you're, and you're before, standing before God or waiting to be judged at the white throne judgment, in which case you're still not coming back. There's lots of people who believe in ghosts. But that's, that's because they don't, they don't put God first. They don't put God's word. Do I believe that people see things that are, are considered to be ghosts? Absolutely. Are they seeing the spirit of the loved one or the person that they think they're seeing? Absolutely not. They're seeing a demon pretending to be somebody else. And people will say, well, how do they know these things? Because everything you've done, said, or spoken has been done in front of the demonic world as much as it has been done in, in front of the angelic world. And Satan has good note keepers and, and recordings as well. So everything you've said out loud and done out loud and done in person has been done in the presence and sight of both sides of the, of the spirit world. So they can easily pretend to be something that they're not and get all the details correct. Familiar spirits. Or necromancy, being, ha- having meeting with dead. Necromancy. Necro-dead. Mancy meeting with them. But yeah, familiar spirits is dealing with the dead. Enchanters, diviners are looking at the signs and trying to give you the future oftentimes. Oftentimes, all these are very much mixed together. Ouija boards are supposed to be used by familiar spirits, and you know, which we know are more going to be demons involved. Uh, and we're seeing a great increase in all of these activities here in America even. You know, it's you, there was a time when you did not see any of these businesses unless you went down into what used to be called the red light district where they had the fortune tellers and the whorehouses and all these things. Now you're finding them everywhere because it's becoming a more accepted work. And we've got one on Stockton Hill up by Northern Avenue that's, you know, read your palms and tell your fortune and all these 
other things that they're having, crystal ball gazing. I'm going, this is happening in all towns everywhere now that people are starting to do this very openly worshiping of Satan. Here in Kingman, this, this area of Mojave County, we have a very large population of Wicca and people following this type of spiritual activities. They call themselves white witches, but there's no such thing as a white witch. They're witches, so it's, they all follow the same power, tap into the same power. But we see a lot of that here, which is also part of the reason we have so many haunted buildings in this town is because these witches and live in, in these buildings. They invite the spirits in, and when they move, the spirit says, well, I've been invited in. I'm, I'm staying to haunt the next person who, who comes in there. We, we kind of laugh at that. Some people laugh at that, but it is very real that these demons are appearing as ghosts, they're appearing as, as active individuals because they want to let people know that there is a spiritual world out there. They don't want to drive people to God, but they want to let them know there's a spiritual world out there and, and maybe even build fears. There are various places where there are demons pro pro projecting themselves as ghosts. You know, they aren't Aunt Martha coming back to haunt you. They're, they're a demon who has, for some reason, been invited in the house and, and is sticking around. Is a very critical place for us to understand. When we look at places that are haunted, there's something in there that is bringing, it's not the, dead, the spirit of the dead trying to get their life together and solve their problems, or it is a demon that has possessed that place for whatever reason. It's also what I believe of why we have in as many alien sightings as we have and everything is that it's demonic activity trying to put a plausible claim when Jesus takes millions of Christians out of this world. They're going to be, well, we've been telling you for years that there's, there's aliens that are abducting us. They just happen to take all the Christians that are making life miserable for us. You know, they've been carefully picking the right people. These are the things we're going to hear, and Satan is trying to put out different uh, millions of lies out there so that he can make itself in the place of God. These were these people out there. The, the witch of Endor was used to dealing with some kind of spirit that we talked about and all of a sudden she sees the wrong spirit coming up and because she was freaked out when Solomon, when Samuel was the one that popped up or something that looked like Samuel, whichever the case might be, it freaked her out too because it wasn't the right demon that she was used to talking with. So these people know who they're talking with, they know what they're doing, and they know the power that they're dealing with eventually. And God says, you're not to be like these people. They're worshiping other gods, and you're not to be like them. So easy for us to get trapped up in this, though. So often we want to be like the world, like everybody else. Don't let me be different. Listening to one of the pastors today on my way home from work, and he was talking about we as Christians need to realize we have a short time to serve God and then we have eternity to rest. We're going to rest for eternity. We have a very short time to serve God and we need to really get serious about serving God while we have time to serve Him. I, read, I had a book one time that somebody gave to me and it goes, The One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. And I, th I thought it was interesting. I knew, what the title, I knew what it was going to be about. You can't witness and lead somebody to Christ in heaven because everybody who's there is already saved. Our only opportunity to witness and lead people to Christ is here on earth. And we need to get really serious about this because eternity hinges on the decisions they make here. Their eternity. And when you think about that, 
Even if you live to be 100 years old, let's say you live to be 1,000 years old. Let's really make it crazy. You live to be 1,000 years old. What is 1,000 years to eternity? It's, eventually it becomes a blink of the eye because you've lived so long that 1,000 years was... I've, I've lived 100,000 million zillion quadrillion years. What was 1,000 years? And the problem with this is you're either going to be in heaven for that time in perfect peace or they're going to be in hell for that long. This is the seriousness of hell. It is eternal punishment that is painful. We need to really get serious, especially with our loved ones, to say they need to make a decision. And if they get mad at us because we're pressing them because they need to make a decision, then they get mad at us. I'd rather have them mad at me for trying to keep them out of hell than looking at me at the white throne and saying, why didn't you tell me? All we can do is share. And that's what I'm saying. I'd rather have people mad at me on this earth because I shared and they don't agree with me and they don't like it than to have them say, well, how come you didn't tell me? I can tell you none of us share, share enough. But we need to be more bold. We need to be more active in our sharing because eternity is at stake with people. And I know I don't do it often enough and, and I've missed opportunities and I, and I tell everybody I'm really slow. I usually think of what I should have said about three hours after I'm done, done talking with a person and I'm no longer there. But we need to be able to take these opportunities and at least open our mouth. Live a life that is not a, hip, a life of hypocrisy that people look at us and they say, now that's what a Christian's supposed to be like. They're, they're, there's joy, there's love, there's kindness. <coughs> The sad thing is when Christians are bitter and angry and harsh and cruel to people and they look at them and they go, well, who wants to be a Christian? Now, if that's the way they are, they're, not, they're just like everybody else I know. I don't want to be like, you know, or, or worse. I do know some people who claim to be Christians that are worse than most non-Christians. And that's a sad place to be. But here God's saying you're not to be like the rest of them because he says you shall be perfect with your Lord, your God. How, do we, how can we walk in his way? How can we be perfect with him? He indwells us. And this is the great thing about Christianity is it's a relationship with God, but we see this relationship all through the Old Testament. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord and was talked to. Abraham found grace in God's eyes and was talked to. Uh, God says, you can have this with me. David said, had that same feeling, you know, God, take not your Holy Spirit from me. God has not changed the way he deals with people. He's always wanted a relationship with man. Garden of Eden, what did he do in the cool of every night? He walked with Adam and Eve. We were created to be in a relationship with God. And it is important for us to be that way. And that walk will change us and make us more and more like God. How do we do that? We get into his word, we spend time with him, we pray, we get taught, and he makes us more like him with every passing day. All people have shortcomings because we're not perfect and we cannot be perfect. But God's grace allows him to keep in fellowship with us. We confess our sins. He forgives us of our sins, stays in fellowship. He changes who we are and makes us more and more righteous. And this is the great thing as we walk with God. He makes us more, he makes us more like him. It's not us battling and beating ourselves into submission. It's God saying... I'm going to kill this area of your life and I'm going to put more of me in that area. I'm going to kill this area of your life and I'm going to put more of me in this area. 
And then you find yourself loving people more, being kind, forgiving easier, uh, reaching out and touching people, maybe even doing nothing but smiling and being, being in a good mood and people look at you. Nothing is greater than to have people go, how can you always be in such a good mood? Why are you always smiling? Well, I don't know that I always smile, but I hear that a lot. I'm going, great opportunity. Let me tell you. Let me tell you about my God. We're to go forth and make disciples. So it means we need to learn to love people enough to go, go and talk to them. For those of us that are introvert by characteristics, that's a little harder than other. But if we really want to understand this, we need to get into the place where we really truly understand how awful hell is. The more we understand how awful hell is, the more likely we are going to be to talk to people about God in heaven because we know what we're trying to keep them out of. Which is why I will oftentimes go to people, I go, if you really understood how bad hell is, you would not. But hell is where the conscience does not, not, does not let go of you for, your rest of your, for, for all of eternity. You know you're there because you deserve it. There's going to be the fire that's there that, doesn't, that burns but doesn't consume. There's going to be the thirst that is talked about in the Lazarus and the rich man story. Uh, the excruciating pain. But you know, even with all of that, probably the worst thing that can possibly be in hell is the worm that, doesn't, that, that continually turns or the conscience that says, you're here because you deserve it. You, you chose this place. Very much an emotional hell as well as, well, but there also seems to be physical pain as well. But, yeah, but, emotional, but emotional pain is always harder. Emotional is always harder than the physical because physical you figure is going to go away. Now in hell it's not going to go away either so you, you really don't have that hope in it. But you're going to have a conscience saying you're here because you deserved it. You're here because you gave up. And part of the white throne judgment I fully believe is when God shows you every time you rejected Jesus Christ. So that he's going to say when you get sent there it's like oh you know, I, I rejected him. 500 times, or I rejected him 50 times, or 20 times, or a million times. Uh, but that's why it's all grace. Why it's all grace for us, because we've accepted him by grace. He said that everybody's going to have the opportunity to have made that choice for him. Now, how that works, I don't know. That's between him and the, and the rest of the world. It's turning your back. For us as Christians, it's turning on back on what we should be. It's living beneath our, our position. And that's why we have to confess our sins and, and he is faithful and just to forgive us. And that forgiveness isn't a heaven or hell forgiveness, but it's a forgiveness that brings us back into relationship with him the way we're supposed to be. Yeah, when we sin, we've, we break fellowship with him and we have to repent to get that fellowship back in. Otherwise, you're just, you've got this broken fellowship. Matter of fact, God says that if, if you have, in, uh, I think it's Peter, where he says, if you have ought against, if, if your wife, if you have something that's between you and your wife, your prayers will be hindered, he tells men. That your prayers will be hindered because you're not right with your wife. So this is pretty serious stuff when God's talking about fellowship. Now, he's not saying you're going to go to hell because of it. Because if you're saved, you're saved. Because it's a grace transaction. It is a big difference to be saved and be in a close, tight relationship with God. Been there and done both. There's a misery in it when you're, when you're out of fellowship with God, when there's that sin issue between you and God, if you're truly one of his children, because you've got conviction and you know that you're out of fellowship and you know you've got to correct that relationship with him. And that relationship is the first John 1 John 1.9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of all righteousness. And this is not... Again, it's not salvation. It's not heaven or hell. It's that relationship. 
Because what makes Christianity different is the relationship with God. I know God. There is nobody that can convince me that God doesn't exist because I know him. I've talked with him. He's answered my prayers. He's fulfilled the things I need. He's given me peace. He's given me wisdom. He's given me love for people. There is no way that I could not say there is no God because I know better. And there's no way anybody can convince me that there's not a God because I know better because he is somebody that I have a personal relationship with. I understand, believe me, number one, I was an introvert. Number two, I didn't care about people for many years. God took a lot of years to have to teach me. Yeah, but I'm just saying my part was I was an introvert. I didn't, because I moved around all the time, I got to a place where I didn't care about people at all. God has had to take a lot of years to teach me to love people and to be more gentle with people. And it's taken a long time. I'm not going to, I'm not trying to skip, you know, say it's easy. It's taken a long time to get to where I am today. Basically what I have done because God has challenged me to do it is I act like what, I, what he's asked me to be until it becomes, becomes real. On the surface, you don't appear like an introvert. If you'd have known me 20, 30, 40 years ago, you would know how different I am today than I was then. What does introvert mean? An introvert would be very happy to stay inside their house not because they're afraid of going out, but because they just have no desire to go anywhere near other people. And you put them in a group of people and they'd be, they would be called the wallflower. You know, they stood against the wall in the middle of a party and didn't talk to anybody, didn't do, didn't do anything. They just stood against the wall. And the extrovert is the one who's in the center, the center of attention, talking with everybody and being outgoing. I don't know what makes introverts and extroverts. All I know in my case is that God challenged me and I, you know, I started learning to purposely go talk to people and believe me, it used to be very hard to even make myself go talk to people. But over the years it's become easier and easier. You know, nobody, nobody's taken my head off because I talked to them and this is part of what the Bible actually tells us to do. You do the right thing because it's right. And eventually it becomes who you are and you just do it because that's who you are now, not because of you're doing it just because it's right. In this area is that, that we look at here, God is saying you're to be like me. He goes, you, you shall possess the land and you are not to hearken to these individuals. You're not to become like them. God's, God's always telling his people, don't be like the world. Don't be like the world. Be a follower of him. And we need to be telling our churches the same thing. Quit being followers of the world and start following God and stepping out with God. This is something that needs to be spoken over and over and over again because we have a sin nature. And our sin nature likes to walk with the world and be like the world. When I was first moved to Kingman and I was working at home and telecommuting, if I hadn't had the church, I probably never would have went out because I don't like shopping. And I have no reason to go out and talk to people, but I had church. And that was the only thing that really took me out of the, out of the house on a routine basis was to oh, go to church. Good, really. Oh, it was great. It was perfect. Was good, yeah. If I didn't have God in the church, I would have been in the house all the time and nobody would have known that I was there, probably other than my, my, my two kids and my wife. You know, they would have been the only ones that knew that this, another person lived in this house because there was no reason to leave. No, not, no, it's not that at all. It's just I'm perfectly happy being by myself. It's not that I'm afraid to go out amongst a crowd. It's not that I'm afraid of doing any of that because that's what a grower phobia is. You're afraid to go out. And it wasn't that. It was just because of who I was, I had no desire to go out and be with other people. My mind didn't need them. I didn't need to be around people. 
So I'm glad I had God in the church because it pushed me out and amongst in and around people where I continued to be social. But my natural tendencies would be just stay in the home and and do what it was I was doing. But this is why God says we need each other. We need an avenue of being able to, number one, people can rub you the wrong way, which teaches you to grow in your love and your forgiveness. <laughs> and you're going to rub them the wrong way, which helps them to learn the, learn the same thing. So it's, all right, well, let's go ahead and end in prayer here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you. Lord, help us to be separate from the world and be a shining example of who you are because that's what you desire for us. Help us to be great witnesses. Lord, if there is anybody that listens to this that doesn't know you, we ask that they confess their sins, admit they're a sinner and that they deserve punishment and accept the gift of eternal life that you have paid for through your son Jesus' death. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.